Stories Behind the White Coat. This is Grayscale. I'm Ben Davis. Hey everyone. It's been a while, but we're back with another episode of Grayscale. Before we get started, I just want to give a quick plug to my new podcast, The Break. A podcast that looks at current professional athlete injuries from a sports medicine perspective. Simply search The Break Sports Medicine in iTunes or wherever else you get your podcast. We'll also have the link in the description of this episode as well. Today we welcome Alex Langley, third year resident and soon to be graduate in less than four days. After graduation, he plans on moving back to his home state, New York, to continue to be a family medicine physician. He also wants me to give a quick shout out to his fiance, Stacy, who's currently baking a cake for one of his coworkers' birthdays. And as always, certain names and facts are changed to protect the identities of our patients. I spent a few weeks trying to figure out what exactly I should talk about. And during that time, we have these weekly sessions where we get together as residents to talk about emotionally trying things associated with residency. So whether it's patient interactions, other residents, the attendings, our significant others, life outside of residency, whoever it might be. And I found myself talking about one particular patient uh, three weeks in a row. And it sort of dawned on me after the fact, uh, when I was talking about her with an attending, that this is probably the patient I should talk about. So Marilyn is in her mid-40s, who I first met a little over two years ago and had a really complicated social history. She also had some distant medical history sort of around her childhood, but otherwise was really pretty straightforward. And so by the time I saw her, her life had kind of come together really nicely. She had spent much of her 20s and 30s struggling with drug addiction in a pretty major way. And in the few years prior to me meeting her, had obtained sobriety from all substances. And after that, I was able to get housing. And after that, I got back in touch with her family, who she had not talked with in many years, including her children. And she got the first job she had had in two decades. And she and her children were immensely proud. She was working and had stable housing for the first time as an adult living independently. And so things were really pretty straightforward, but she does have some medical complications as well. She uh, was born really premature and has a little bit of cognitive difficulties associated with that. She lost her eye, one of her eyes as a child. And so whenever you meet her, it tends to be sort of a longer visit because it takes a little longer to explain things, but she's just infinitely pleasant. And I was out of the country, and she saw a couple of our providers after an injury at work. Her elbow had been banged by a big heavy pan, and it hurt. When it kept hurting, her boss was worried it would be fractured, said you should go to your doctor and get your elbow x-rayed. And we got it x-rayed, and 
maybe there was a bone chip, maybe not. We had an orthopedist look at it and he said, well, yeah, there is a bone fragment that actually looks like a chronic injury and we should have her start some PT. She hasn't been using her elbow normally for a few weeks and now the pain is probably secondary to that. But her pain continued in a really pretty significant way. And eventually the same orthopedist who we work with frequently said, this isn't normal, we should get an MRI. Um, MRIs are very expensive. As a result, insurance companies are really hesitant to order them. And organizing them can take a long time. And it took us about a month. And she had tried to organize on her own multiple times. And eventually, uh, we made the appointment for her. And all of this was managed by my colleagues because for a couple of reasons. One, I was out of town when she first presented. And then we have this specialty sports medicine clinic that she was following up at for this injury. But she ended up on my schedule one day in mid to late March. And she'd gotten the MRI. And so I looked at it and in the reading said, bone marrow, something. We don't really know what it is. She moved though during the MRI. And because she moved, it's probably just an artifact. But it could be and then listed 10,000 things that it could possibly be. And on there was a diagnosis of cancer. So looking at her labs, and we had a number of labs for various reasons, they were all fine. They were all normal. Uh, The only thing that wasn't normal is by this point, she'd had so much elbow pain for so long that she developed something called a contracture, which is basically your muscles get stiff. And even if you want to, even if you get rid of the pain, or even if someone else does it for you, you can no longer fully extend a joint. And that's really an indicator for a pretty significant pathology. That's, that's not something you get from some tendonitis and an injury from three months prior. And it really didn't make sense for me. And I'm like, I got a bad feeling. You really need to go see an oncologist. And the oncologist sees her and he says, ah, you know, just like the radiologist said, could be an artifact. Her labs are all normal, but we can get some specific markers for a type of cancer called multiple myeloma, which can present this way. And it would be very strange um, to present with elbow pain for this cancer, but we will get it. And so I see these labs trickling back and she had made a follow-up appointment with me for about a week later because her elbow pain had been really escalating. Um, and I see these lab results coming back. And I think to myself, this is just one, 100%. This is multiple myeloma. I don't know what else it could possibly be. And I really had broached the idea with her at the last visit that, you know, this could be cancer. Cancer is a thing that happens in our bones sometimes. And, you know, that's why I'm sending you to see a cancer doctor. Uh, And she had really not, she had had pretty strong denial that that was going to be the case. There isn't a lot of therapeutic benefit to pushing that sort of diagnosis early on when you don't have the information. So I let it go and I'm getting these labs back and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is, this is exactly like the worst case scenario I was thinking of. 
she definitely has multiple myeloma. But because she hadn't seen her oncologist yet, sort of hid behind that uncertainty. And when I saw her, she came in, I said, you know, the labs don't look good. You're going to be seeing your oncologist tomorrow. So uh, why don't we focus on your pain? And that was actually a long conversation because she really wanted to avoid narcotics because of her history of substance abuse and the pride that she had in her sobriety. Um, I convinced her that given the degree of pain she was having, that some low-dose morphine was probably a good idea. And prescribed some. Uh, And she saw her oncologist the next day, and he said, this certainly looks like multiple myeloma. We need to do a bone biopsy. Arranges to do a bone biopsy, which is quite painful in and of itself. And organizing that takes a few days. Getting the results from that takes a few more days. And this time she gets back to see the oncologist first, who gives her the official diagnosis of multiple myeloma. And she comes back to see me a couple weeks later after um, getting the diagnosis. And she's just really thankful to me. And I'd been dreading this visit because I thought she was going to be pretty mad. Because I'd had these lab results and I hadn't told her because I had, basically I had an excuse and it was a conversation I didn't want to have. It was going to be too hard. And, um, and I had someone else on board who could do that for me. Um, and I think I was probably projecting anger with myself more than what she was likely to be feeling. And she continues to stay to say that, you know, I caught this thing, which is just highly inaccurate. It was caught by a very persistent orthopedist who insisted on an MRI for elbow pain that wasn't getting better. And it was diagnosed because of an oncologist, basically, who followed an algorithm. Um, and I was just sort of in the middle, seeing all these terrible things happen to her. But she comes back. And she's getting planned to start chemo, and she starts chemo. And comes back to see me after a couple rounds of chemo. And she gets labs with every um, infusion of her chemotherapy drugs, which happens about once a month. And they're better, distinctly better, which is what you expect to happen in multiple myeloma. It's a very weird, it's a very weird cancer in that it's highly responsive to to chemo and at the same time kills 100% of its patients. It, it's not a normal thing that we talk about. There's not other types of cancer that I can think of that has this really unique setting and that it, it like is very, very responsive and then it will 100% recur. And my uncle passed away from myeloma while I was in residency about a year prior to all of this and was getting his stem cell transplants while I was in med school in New York and I would go and visit him. And I remember seeing this mountain of a man who had, you know, broken his spine as a result of the cancer and had spinal surgery and could barely move his neck and who couldn't 
who wasn't shaking hands because he didn't have an immune system and he was worried that someone could give him a cold, which is probably pretty true. You know, this is great, big, gregarious man who, you know, made his living as a photographer and I'm sure had spent a whole career shaking hands. And I saw him laid to waste by this disease. And I think every time I see my patient, she remains hopeful and I continue to feel a bit like a fraud because all I see down her path is likely years of suffering and then just really unpleasant, just a really unpleasant story. Not a happy ending for this woman who really had all of all, all the trials and tribulations that some can have, you know, congenital issues around cognition, major mental and substance abuse issues, some medical issues, who had gotten back on her feet and had charted a new path. And I'm the one giving her this news that that, that path isn't going to last. Do you feel that it's your or a provider's responsibility to say exactly what you're thinking, which is more along the lines of discouragement, or to hold that back and to temper that with encouragement in a situation where there's not much hope? I don't really see any advantage in telling someone who's going to have a really hard road with an unpleasant ending, that the ending is unpleasant. I think being forthright and saying, you know, are things going to be hard? Absolutely. And being honest in the idea that like, this is a ultimately fatal process so she can plan her life. But no, I don't, I don't think we have that obligation. While you still carry that burden with you, if you could go back and change anything, would you have done that differently? I I wouldn't have wanted to. Um, I think someone with a little more courage might have called the oncologist and said, can you look at these labs? She's going to be seeing me tomorrow. Should I have this conversation with her? Now that that is something that I could have done. I wouldn't have been as well positioned to talk about like what chemo would look like or how long or how often. So I might not have been the ideal person to finish that conversation. Um, but I think there's an argument to be said that I was very well positioned to start that conversation. Special thank you to Alex Langley for joining me today, as well as Swedish First Hill Family Medicine Residency and those who support the podcast. You know who you are. Finally, a big thank you as always to our patients who continue to enrich our lives through shared experiences. For more content, you can visit thebadhumors.com. 